Hello and welcome to another episode. Today we're going to be talking about Ward Number 6 by Anton Chekhov, which, as you can tell from the author's name, is a product of Russian literature. I honestly really, really like Russian literature, so I want to talk about Russian literature first before we start specifically talking about this product of it. I can't give you like a whole comprehensive dump of information, obviously, in just a few minutes, but I want to talk about how keen I am on Russian literature and some observations I've made about it. I haven't consumed Russian literature enough to make a comprehensive judgment about it either, which is also a part of the reason why I'm avoiding that. But a few months ago, which would be around the beginning of our summer break, which is like June, I thought, hey, I like Dostoevsky a lot and I like Tolstoy a lot, and both of these guys are Russian, so maybe I should get into Russian literature, you know. And since then, I read Pushkin, I read Turgenev, I read Chekhov, hence the episode. So I concluded that it was not just my love for Dostoevsky and Tolstoy that made me enjoy Tolstoy and Dostoevsky so much, but also my love for Russian literature that made me enjoy that duo so much. So now I also enjoy Pushkin, Turgenev, and Chekhov. <laughs> I kind of pause before saying Chekhov because that just sound is kind of odd to me, to be honest. I've never heard that kind of a sound being pronounced in English before. So if you can unhear that, or if you can excuse that, that will be very good for me. Anyways, I've observed some common characteristics of these Russian novels that I've read so far. They're not really deep at all, or maybe not even worth mentioning, but I want to mention them because this book also fits into all of those three common character traits, and I want to talk about how it fits them, and then I want to get into the book with that kind of an introduction to it. So the first trait I observed is that there is always a symptom of a mental illness, if not the mental illness itself. For example, in Ward number 6, it takes place in a ward, so it's pretty clear to us that there will be mentionings of mental health issues. And yes, there is. Ivan Demetrich, for example, he has schizophrenia. He has a great deal of paranoia resulting from the schizophrenic disorder. This paranoia is mainly centered around the corruption of law. Ivan seriously fears that he will be a victim to the corruption of law, get punished for something he didn't do, or do something that is not wrong, but isn't legal either, so get punished for that. It is pretty ironic because Ivan, before he started having these paranoid thoughts, eventually driving him to mental illness, used to work at a legal office. Another example I can give to mental health symptoms being mentioned in Russian novels will be one that you all would recognize. It's Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is still my favorite writer, so most of my examples, if I give any more, will be from his books, probably, because those are the first ones to pop in my mind all the time. In Crime and Punishment, you've probably already guessed this once I said Crime and Punishment, but Raskolnikov shows very clear and severe symptoms of sociopathy if not displaying sociopathy itself. And then in Russian literature, another common trait that I've found in all the books that I've read so far is that there's always poorness. Like, there has to be at least one character who is poor. And it's mostly more than one, like much more than one. So I remember in the beginning of counting these common traits that I found in Russian literature, I was saying that these probably aren't very important and not even worth mentioning, but I still want to mention them because I'm pretty keen on them. Right now I've changed my mind. They're pretty important because they show us how the writers criticized the social structure of the time. Like here they're criticizing the socioeconomic structure by putting poorness into their art and they're also criticizing the 
mental situation of the public again caused by the social structure by adding like little symptoms of mental illnesses that weren't even deemed as symptoms of mental illnesses at the time probably so back to the topic of poorness they're always poor you know there's always at least one character who is very poor Andrei is a doctor and a prime example for the poorness character archetype in Russian novels in Ward Number 6. Because he's a doctor, he has been working as a doctor for 20 years. Then his job becomes, like, useless for him because they take it away from him and we're going to get to why they do that later. But once they take his job away from him, he has barely enough money to last him for, like, a few weeks or a few months. It's also pretty interesting because they're driving inspiration from real life, criticizing real life using a world that they derived from real life and inspired from... No, that was a wrong sentence. Forget I said that. I mean, I could edit that sentence out and re-say it, but I've already said it like thrice, and I think the last version, although grammatically very corrupt, does convey my idea enough, and it doesn't sound too great, but it does convey the idea, so you're gonna have to bear with that, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> next. Yeah, it does criticize society by taking society's elements into it. And poorness is criticized. Like, poorness itself isn't criticized, but the fact that the government can't help the poorness and doesn't care about the poorness and no person ever cares about the poorness and just accepts it as it is is criticized very much although very subtly it's also pretty interesting to me that despite how poor these people are they can have servants like they can afford to have servants but they can't afford to eat anything more than stale bread and pickles pickles i'm talking about pickled apples by the way that's a food that andre is said to enjoy which is interesting, like pickled apples. I believe they would taste really good because that sour taste of a pickle and the sweetness and crunchiness of an apple, that would definitely be a great combination, but I've never tried it. So after reading this book, I've kind of gotten the urge to do that, actually. I want to pickle some apples for myself. My mom and my dad and my grandma would probably all cringe at the thought of that, but we do use apple cider vinegar, so why not make pickles out of apples? Or grapes, for that matter, because we also use grape vinegar. But no, grapes wouldn't be that great as pickles. Apples would be really great as pickles, I can imagine. But that was not very in topic, was it? I mean, what I was trying to say is that despite having to eat apple pickles and despite having to eat stale bread, they can still afford to have servants. Like, Andrew has a servant until he has to move to the mental ward, which we will get to. That's very interesting. And I guess that was the actual case at the time as well, because if it wasn't the case, then why would they put it like that in their books, right? Like, every single writer puts it like that. They can't afford anything more than stale bread, but they can afford to pay their servants. But yeah, Andrew also has a servant, and he's always very kind to her, sometimes even overly polite. We're going to get to that right now. Andrew's personality is very passive. His original dream was actually to become a priest, but after his father encouraging him to become a doctor, he became a doctor. He became a doctor with a priest's soul, as I like to say it, because a doctor, I mean, you would imagine a doctor to be kind of rebellious, you know? You would kind of expect them to be a bit determined to cure the badness in the world, because that's kind of their job. It's kind of their job to cure the illnesses in the world, but he's not really doing that. I mean, he does cure patients. He does at least get them rid of their pain for a while. But he ultimately believes that everything happens because they had to happen. Like, if there is a hospital, it's because it has to be full. If there is a mental ward, it's because it needs patients to be in it. And he especially refuses to cure mental patients because he believes the power of perception. He believes that mental patients are in the case that they're in because of their perceptions 
of themselves and of the world around them, which is kind of true. However, he also believes that they can cure themselves by simply changing their perception, which is just that, like, you know that toxic positivity thing? That's exactly this. He does not openly say mental patients can simply cure themselves by changing their perception and tilting their views to make them more optimistic, but he does at some point tell Ivan he could just imagine himself somewhere else, rather than in this cold ward. By imagining himself in a different place, by changing his perception like that, he could actually feel better. Our peace, our happiness is inside ourselves. The external factors such as being in a mental ward shouldn't influence it much because it's, after all, inside us. At first, we are not sure if he is saying this because that's genuinely what he believes, and he thinks that he's saying that because that is what he genuinely believes, but towards the end of the book, we realize that it is not that easy to change your perception, and that that philosophy of his is actually something that contributes to his laziness and passiveness. Also, something that stems from his laziness and passiveness as a sort of an excuse. Ivan, on the other hand, is pretty much the opposite of Ivan. Sorry, Andri. Ivan can't be the opposite of Ivan. He is pretty much the opposite of Andri. He believes that when we don't show reaction, we're actually sacrificing a chance. We're actually giving up a chance to show that we're alive. Because something that isn't alive wouldn't show reaction to whatever is happening to it. In the ward, there is actually one patient who gets beaten up by the porter every time, and he is treated very badly, and he has been through very bad things. The bad things have numbed him down to such a level, at this point he's not even human. He's not even alive. He's just an object standing there, not reacting to anything. And he's also pretty much an imbecile, because he doesn't understand anything that's going on, and thus, again, can't react to anything that is going on. According to Ivan, this is. Like, that description of the patient is from Ivan's eyes. According to Ivan, a human should be able to react as a a way of showing their intelligence, a way of displaying their intelligence, and B, as a way of displaying, as a way of proving that they're alive. These two characters that I've kind of introduced you to, Ivan and Andri, are actually the characters that you need to know the most about. They're the ones that have the most philosophic depth in the story. This book doesn't really rely on a plot line to, to go on. It relies more on the thoughts of the characters and the characters themselves and the backstories of them and the behaviors of them, etc. Now what is it about then, honey, you may ask, because I haven't talked about what it's exactly about in the last, like, five minutes or maybe more, maybe ten, maybe fifteen, I don't know. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about what the book is about now. It takes place in a mental ward, as I said, and it has a porter that I've mentioned when talking about that imbecile patient. The porter named Nikita abuses his power very much, until someone more powerful, like a doctor, comes into the room or the ward. Although the doctor wouldn't tell him to stop, probably because the doctors don't respect the mental patients either, he stops because he respects the doctor. There are five patients in the mental ward and each have their own backstories. Ivan's backstory is a little bit more detailed and dived into. His story kind of contains more ideas to think about and to be food for thought. The stories of the other four characters are more brief. All of these stories somehow tie to the discussions Andre and Ivan have in the story like how the imbecile provided an example for Ivan's ideas. Other patients in the later pages of the book, we see that they also represented an idea or some notion that is mentioned somewhere later in the book. Andrew gets assigned as a doctor to the hospital where Ivan is in. He notices what a bad condition it is in, but again, he is too passive and nice to do anything about it. Dr. Andrew is also said to read a lot, 
like he reads a lot and Ivan was also said to read a lot actually before he started to have these schizophrenic paranoid thoughts and they have a couple conversations together when Andrew goes to the ward to visit the patients. He actually is visiting Ivan, not the other patients. He doesn't care about them as much as he cares about Ivan. And they reflect their ideologies to us through these conversations as if it's a three-people conversation, actually. Although you can't say anything, it's like you're listening as the reader. You can also add your own thoughts into it and think about them later on and highlight those little sentences, which is really cool. That's one thing that I love about reading. Then comes Hobotov, who is a very shallow man and he's very obsessed with status. And he manipulates the authorities and responsible people into taking away Andri's job. That is how Andri loses his job. He is having the discussions with Ivan, which means he's very often caught in Ward number 6, which is how Hobotov manipulates the responsible authorities. Hobotov uses the long time Andri spends at the ward as a justification for why he is mentally ill, and because he's mentally ill, he can't be a doctor, and so they take away his job. Andre later, like on the last 10 pages or something, gets put into the ward too, and after he endures the pain, he can't save himself by perceiving his pain away, so he dies. Yes, that's all. <laughs> no, from the time he is diagnosed with a mental illness by the responsible authorities, until the moment he dies, he sometimes loses that careless and stoic passive attitude that he had before. He sometimes realizes that the world will always contain what he hates, even if it doesn't matter if his life is bad. And the fact that bad is an unescapable vicious cycle and sometime in the future, something is in a situation as bad as he is in right now, and no perception can change that, drives him crazy. The experience helps him gain practical experience which was something Ivan told him he lacked and that was why he was so passive about everything. According to Ivan, his lack of practical experience was why Andrew was so quote-unquote chill about everything and so passive. And these experiences do in fact reshape Andrew's philosophy. I'm not sure if you've noticed, you probably have, but for this episode's summary I've written a full script from the start until the end like sentence by sentence, skipping some sentences and some additional sentences. I did do those, but I almost read it like fully off of my notes because I feel like when I don't do that, which is what I did for the past 11 episodes or so, I kind of drift off topic and start talking about my own interpretations instead of what the book is actually about, and that would definitely be very annoying and confusing for you. Like, later on when I listen to the episodes, it feels like I'm talking about what's happening, and then I suddenly start talking about the interpretations that I have, and then I go back to talking about what's happening as if I never drifted off in the first place. And I figured that that would be bad, so instead of writing a few keywords only, I wrote a whole script this time. Although it's less conversational when I speak off of the script, and it's a bit less natural, I think I can fix that in time. My useless talks about the creation process of this episode aside, we are finally done with the part that I find the hardest, which is the summary part. I managed to stay on track enough, I believe. Now I want to talk about some questions, because these questions are very deep questions that the book brings up at least for me. The book actually brings up a lot of questions, like almost each paragraph brings up a new philosophic question and a new inquiry. These few questions are the ones that I especially wanted to discuss in this episode. I feel like they're going to be the ones that are most productive and most useful and most interesting to discuss in a few minutes. The first question I have is, how far can we take the perception Andrew speaks of? Like, yes, if you're in pain and you imagine yourself in a better condition, you do feel better, but at some point, Andrew dies, and he has a horrible headache, 
and his ears are howling into him and he has fatigue at the end of that day he dies of hemorrhage and he obviously can't perceive himself out of death or out of the pain that brings him death at the end he also fails to perceive himself in a better situation when he insults his friends i mean they are not his friends he doesn't see them as friends but he does insult these people that he was trying to treat nicely he makes them get out of his house after that moment he feels a very strong sense of shame because he feels like he betrayed his own philosophy by insulting them and yelling at them to get out and he's right he did destroy like he did betray his philosophy because it's against your philosophy to tell people to stop doing something that they're doing to you if you believe that anything that is done or anything that exists is there because it is meant to be done and meant to exist that guy mikhail and that other guy whose name was hobotov were both meant to exist there to do those tortures to you and they're they're not like necessarily things that you describe as tortures for example mikhail genuinely believes that andrey is a friend of his when they bury him mikhail is the only person who comes to andrey's funeral along with andrey's servant who came there because andrea was always very kind to her probably he was always very polite with his words out of his passiveness probably anyways back to the topic hobotov and mikhail keep coming to him as like a way of visiting the ill i guess and each time hobotov who is basically the person who took his job just ever so shamelessly brings him a jar of medicine each time and he's like this will cure you you'll be good in no time come on get up and then there's also mikhail who's genuinely his friend or at least mikhail thinks so andrey doesn't agree with this but mikhail doesn't know because andrey is too passive to say anything until the moment that andrey fires like he just goes on about how low what they're doing is and how pathetic it is and how wrong it is that they're always like coming to his house and talking to him about this nonsense about how he will get well so soon and how this medicine will help him and how he looks much healthier than he did before etc but if we go a single page back from the rage we can actually see that the main reason for the rage isn't that he hates these two people so much it's because of his own internal realization so these two people in Andrew's eyes, actually symbolize badness and evil. They are causing him struggles right now. When he thinks of his struggles, he starts to think, for the sake of some comfort, he will disappear in the end. It will be like he never existed. It will be like he never went through the pain and struggles that he's going through right now with Hobotov and Mikhail. But when he thinks of this, when he thinks of a million years later, when it won't matter if he struggled or not, and no one will know, it will be like he never struggled at all. He can't help but imagine Mikhail and Hobotov standing on rocks by the sea, by the beach, behaving the evil, bad way that they always do when they're in front of Andrey. He can't help but imagine the people who symbolize badness in his eyes continuing to exist, no matter how much goes on and how much disappears from existence. He can't help but imagine how bad it is that these bad people, and the badness in general, the badness in the world will continue to exist and he thinks of how he can't do anything about it this is what i mean by he feels like he betrayed his own philosophy he was saying that nothing matters in the end it will be like they never happened and the things that are currently taking place are taking place because they're supposed to take place if someone is in the mental ward it's because the mental ward exists and if the mental ward exists it's because it is supposed to be full he could in the same way say badness exists because bad exists bad exists for badness to exist 
so they have to coexist together in this world. He believes that the end of the things is what matters. And that is again, I think, a hint to his pastor soul, as I like to call it. Like, he has a very religious core on the inside. He kind of has a fatalist philosophy along with a stoic one. We should be content with what we have because we can't have anything else and what we have is what we are supposed to have. And in the end, what we die with is what we were supposed to die with, is the type of philosophy that we're talking about. Back to the original question, if towards the end of the book, it frustrates our character so much that he can't interfere with the badness that will always exist in the world. Does this mean perception has its limits? Unlike how Andrew had initially thought in the beginning of the book when he didn't have any practical experience, I'd say yes, perception has its limits. When something that you really can't stand comes to the play, when you genuinely have a real-life demonstration of what is bad and what is good, you do understand. Sometimes you can't perceive your way out of bad, because it is so bad. Andre also at some point thinks of how he got himself into a vicious cycle. He didn't get himself into that vicious cycle, actually. Khabachev did. Once every responsible authority started thinking that he was insane and that he was mentally ill, that he should have been put into the ward or at least banned from his job, it turned into an exitless spiral for him. Like, since everybody thinks that he is insane, he can't do tasks that same people do because he is not allowed to do them because he is perceived as insane. And it doesn't help if he perceives himself as sane because no matter what he perceives himself as, he is going to be seen as insane and thus can't do the same people activities. So at some point he can't perceive himself as sane anymore since he can't do the sane activities anymore. And that will result in people thinking that he's even more insane and that will just turn into a vicious cycle, which it does. So yes, perception does have its limits, as we just discussed. Then we have, is it ethical to be passive when you could be helpful? This is another question for Andre. In this book, I believe there are two main characters. It's Ivan and Andre, but we've been talking mainly about Andre so far. I believe I said Andre like 50 or 100 times, but you'll have to bear with me, I'm sorry. Is it ethical to be passive when you could instead be helpful? Andre actually symbolizes an authority figure here. Like, especially in the beginning of the book. And in the end, he turns into something that is not an authority figure at all. Quite the opposite of that, actually. We can tell when someone is an authority figure or not by the way that Nikita reacts to them. When someone is an authority figure, Nikita immediately listens to them and obeys them and shows some decency to them. But if they are not an authority figure, he just beats them up and steals their money and becomes like an abusive porter. And that is his real personality. He's an abusive porter. In the beginning of the book, when Andrew comes to visit the port, sorry, the ward, the porter is very kind to him. He's like saying yes to every demand that he has. And he's very good at presenting himself. He's like very polite, etc. But in the end, when Andrew gets put into the mental ward as a mental patient, Nikita is the one beating him up and insulting him and treating him very badly. So that's quite deep. It's how power matters so much and status matters so much. And also people like Nikita really love abusing the small amount of power that they have. My personal answer to this question would be, in most cases, it isn't ethical, but it isn't unethical either. You know? You could do that. It's better if you don't do that. But it's not bad if you do that. If you see someone being murdered and just pass by without calling anyone, like the police or something, that is not a bad move. That is not necessarily something that an evil person would do. 
But that is not something a good person would do either. That's just what a neutral, mediocre, average person would do. But yes, that's the word I'd like to use there, mediocre, not average, because mediocre has a more negative connotation. In this book, it's actually used as kind of a way to represent the politics. Is it fair for the government to remain passive when the mentally ill patients, also known as the citizens, are struggling so much? Well, I believe in that case, it is unethical. You are the one who was made responsible for the well-being of those citizens. And if you are not being responsible about that, then you are just being irresponsible. And being irresponsible about something that affects other people is definitely unethical. So what the character Andrew was doing is definitely unethical. If he was just a passerby who had the power to make the hospital a better place, and he completely ignored it instead of working to make it a better place, that wouldn't be ethical, but that wouldn't be unethical either. Since we did get into the political implications in this book for a very short while in there, I want to talk about one last political implication in this book. It's about religion and politics being mixed. There is, again, no real saying that it is referring to the politics of that time's Russia, but it is pretty obvious that it is referring to the politics of that time's Russia. This mini discussion session of this episode will mainly rely on Sergei Sergeyevich since it is about politics and religion being mixed together, and Sergeyevich is how the writer decided to put the implications through to come to us. Sergeyevich is a doctor at this hospital, but he is described to be, I'm saying described a little too much, but I'll get over it, he is described to be more like a senator than a doctor. He is a manager. Rather than someone who cures the ill, he is someone who manages the ill, and someone who manages the people who cure the ill. People do come for him for cures, but he only just gives them some essential oils and sends them back. Essential oil is an inside joke between a friend of mine and me, so whenever I say essential oil, I kind of get the urge to laugh. Anyways, back to what I was saying. The way that Sergeyevich is initially introduced to us makes him seem like a religious person. He decorates the hospital everywhere with religious ornaments. Religious ornaments, by the way, on a side note, they look so cool. Every single religion's religious ornaments are always so cool. They have a philosophy behind and they have an ideology behind them and they have a history and a story behind them. And they're just such works of art. I am very impressed every time I see someone who is displaying religious ornaments in their own homes. But when I see someone who puts religious ornaments in a workplace, like how Sergeyevich is doing, I don't really like that. You may ask why, and I'd say because I think religion is supposed to be very personal. Personally, I feel like if someone is doing anything that interacts with God in any way, I think that would be very vulnerable for them to do. Praying, for example, is a very personal ritual in terms of religion, I think. And Sergeyevich isn't like that. He prays with the patients. Let alone praying with them, he makes one of the patients pray for everyone in the room. And I think that's a bit off. And I think that's a sign that Sergeyevich is not actually religious. And he himself doesn't know this because he paid the money to make the hospital more Christian. He does actually think that he loves Christianity, but he loves the power that Christianity gives him in reality because Christianity gives him the power. I mean, not Christianity specifically. Any religion would give you the power of that if you allowed it to. Christianity, in this case, just religion overall, gives him the power to make someone stand up and pray for everyone. It gives him the power to blame his mistakes on something greater. 
As the manager of the hospital, Sergeyevich is personally responsible of making the hospital a better place. But does he do anything about that? No, he doesn't. And what does he tell his other co-workers when they ask him about the bad condition of the hospital? He says, anything that is bad comes because we've been bad to God. Anything that is bad happens because we sin. And that is something that I relate to a lot. I don't relate to someone who says that, I relate to that saying a lot because I've heard it a million times in my life. Like, I live in Turkey and I'm going to give a more personal example because I feel like I can convey the idea better when I move on from a story that I genuinely have been through. We have a lot of earthquakes here, like once in every few months we have a magnitude of 4 or 5, which isn't that much, but it is something. You know. Each time an earthquake like that happens, instead of discussing the architectural or civil engineering related issues of the buildings, or instead of discussing the geological features of the earthquake, there will be at least one imam, and you'd better wish it's one, it's not, who comes up and says that all of this happened because we are sinning. Doing that is such a poor excuse for being incapable of protecting people from the earthquake. And the fact that I think those people genuinely believe their excuses makes me even angrier. By the way, <laughs> I believe that Sergeyevich is exactly in that situation. Like, he doesn't realize that he is using religion as an excuse. He genuinely believes himself when he is saying, all bad that comes, comes from our sins. Just don't. Don't do that. It's your own mistake that you're not fixing the hospital. So to sum up all that I've said, I believe that Sergeyevich is a man who thinks of himself as a religious person, but in reality he's an abuser of religion because of the way he treats his patients in like an assertive way, in a bossy way, and because of the way he treats his co-workers in that same bossy way, and because of the way he utilizes sins as a way to justify any bad thing that happens, which he could have actually taken into control if he tried hard enough and if he was accountable enough. Lastly, I want to discuss the views of the characters on life. Andre, as I've mentioned before, has a very passive view and he says that my badness isn't mine, my evilness isn't my responsibility because maybe if I was put in another time, to another setting, I wouldn't behave like this. So it's not my fault after all that I'm behaving like this. Ivan, on the other side of the coin, believes that we have our own reactions in our own hands and we can react to a situation however we like and that makes us alive. As long as we're alive, we should react to things so that we can shape our things and we can live a better life by shaping things into how we want them to be by reacting to them. Again, Andrew is very pessimistic about this and also very passive. This isn't exactly pessimism to Andrew because he finds comfort in being passive in a way. So I want to say a few sentences about, is Andre right? To some degree, is he right? Is our badness really not in our hands in some cases? I say yes, in some cases our badness is not in our hands, and in those cases badness isn't badness. In some cases goodness isn't in our hands, and in that case goodness isn't goodness either. It's just something that you do because it's second nature to you or because it's an instinct that you have on the inside. Like for example, eating humans. If you were put into a place where it was perfectly normal to be a cannibal, you probably wouldn't inquire why you're eating humans. It would be good if you did, but you wouldn't be bad for not inquiring why you're eating humans, and you wouldn't be bad for being a cannibal in that kind of a setting that would be normal. This is called moral relativism, I think. There's the movie Midsummer. It is really good. In that movie, they actually use moral relativism as a way to manipulate people into getting into their cult. <laughs> so it's a very interesting movie. It's kind of depressing and dark, and it has some triggering topics, but it's really good. 
in that movie the members of the cult are killing people because they believe that dying is a great thing and dying is the ultimate purpose of life so in that cult's perspective in that cult's morals it's not unethical to kill someone and it's not bad to die in that case you wouldn't be evil for killing someone because in that setting killing is not evil andri similarly isn't bad for not doing anything about the hospital because maybe if he was put in a more motivating place such as the hospital in vienna he would do something about it so it's not his fault that he's not doing anything about it but then why doesn't he perceive himself as a doctor in vienna instead of a doctor in this very bad ward he can just perceive his way out right according to his philosophy but only perceiving yourself out of the place doesn't fix anything he can't perceive himself out of time he can't imagine a time where there isn't extreme corruption in society and everything is so corrupt and awful he believes that the already existing awfulness and corruptness is what leads him to be so bad and hopeless and passive about things and in that case i think he's kind of right like when everything is so systemically awful you don't really get the motivation to fix them because you don't really have any hope that you can fix them so maybe yes he is right until some point if you do everything in your power to be good and still can't be good good in terms of like the normal good for example in this case fixing the hospital would definitely be very good if andre had talked to a lot of people about the problems of the hospital and if he had proposed some solutions maybe if he spread the badness of the hospital and how they can fix it to everyone and then it still got rejected and no one did anything and still nothing happened he couldn't do anything by himself either because i mean he can't then him giving up and saying that his badness isn't his badness would make sense but in this case andrew didn't really work that hard to make it better so in this case his badness is a little bit his fault and a little bit the fault of the time that he is in so he's like right by 40 to 60 like that is the ratio of his rightness he is 40 percent right 60 percent wrong because he could have done something it's not entirely his fault that he is not doing something the awfulness and the corruptness of society does suck the motivation out of him but he could have done something despite not being too too motivated and he didn't so he contributed to the awfulness and corruptness of the society so he is at fault and society is like at maybe 30 or 20 or 40 percent let's say 30 that's the average the society is like at 30 percent fault maybe because he didn't try his best as i've said i'm kind of repeating myself at this point but if andrew had tried his best to fix the society and then failed he would have been a hundred percent right and him contributing to the badness of society isn't his fault either because the society has forced him to be passive by not reacting to his activity at all a hundred percent right ivan on the other hand has always tried to talk to people about his ideologies when he was sane <laughs> sane quote-unquote sane he has tried to spread the ideas he has tried to lecture people in very short ways but then he gave up because people weren't listening people weren't learning from him he didn't feel that his discussions and lectures were being productive or useful or good in any way so he stopped in that case ivan isn't at fault because people didn't take what he was trying to give them there were a few people from the town who did take what he was giving but in the end he did go to a mental ward so it was kind of kind of off and some people did say from behind his back that the books he read were what drove him crazy maybe they were right to some extent because when you know so much you do fear more this book actually has even more food for thought in it but this is all for today it has too much and some of my thoughts are very subjective so it wouldn't be really that much fun to listen to them it would get dull for you after some time so i'm not going to go further 
but every single page of this book gives you something to think about and I love that. I would really highly recommend that you read it for yourself and see below the tip of the iceberg. This episode has just been like random parts of the tip of the iceberg, so if you read the whole book that would be really good for you because you can get into the iceberg's tip a little bit more and then dive deeper into it. That is all I have to say, I hope you had a good time. This episode is 60 minutes right now, but I hope I will edit it out to make it a better length for you. Yeah, that's actually all I have to say. I don't want to blabber anymore. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, or night. And I, I still haven't learned how to say a proper goodbye, though. Thank you so much for listening. Have a nice time. Goodbye.